older Greek term, way before the first century, that just meant an assembly or gathering together of people. And this is the term that the writers of the New Testament adopt for their purposes, and this is what we translate church. Now, there are two aspects to the doctrine of of, um, ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. There's a big C church, and then there's a little C church. The big C church is the church universal. And by definition, everyone in the big C church is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. By definition. Not so much so, we'll see in just a bit, not so much so in the little C church. It should be that way. But sometimes there are people in the little C church that are not believers in the Lord Jesus. We'll talk about that in just a few short minutes from now. Millard Erickson, the theologian, distinguishes between the universal church and the local church as the invisible church and the visible church. Paul Inns confirms that men like Augustine, Luther, and Calvin all taught this distinction, which upheld that the invisible church, as emphasizing the perfect, true, and spiritual nature of the church, whereas the visible church recognized the local assembly of believers with its imperfections, and even, unfortunately, sometimes unbelievers, having membership in a local church. The term invisible is also used to indicate that this, this exact membership cannot be known of the universal church. In reality, the members are entirely visible, but in terms of the number of believers worldwide, we don't know. We can count up how many members are in our local church, but how many members of the body of Christ, the church universal, we can't say for certain. In the Bible, we find several metaphors or figures for the universal church. The most common, of course, is the body or the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now that verse is rich in theology. That's the verse that we use when we talk about the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit. My reference here today is to show you that the church universal is called the body of Christ. The church universal is also called the bride of Christ. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride, that's us, has made herself ready. This is a metaphor that is actually introduced in Ephesians chapter 5, but is explained more fully in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. A third metaphor is the flock. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3 also uses this imagery, this flock imagery. Other figures that are used that are lesser figures or lesser used figures are the building in Ephesians chapter 2. They're called the branches in John 15 and a priesthood in 1 Peter chapter 5. So the church universal is all believers in the Lord Jesus. No, no matter where they live, no matter what denomination, if you have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, 
and the grants for eternal life, you are part of the church universal, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the flock of Christ. You're part of this building. You're part of the branches, and you're part of the priesthood, a universal priesthood. There's a great deal of discussion in theological circles as to when did the church with a capital C, the church universal, when did it begin? Some people might say that the church began in Abraham's tent. In fact, a lot of people would say that. But did it begin all the way back with Abraham, or did it begin more recently? I would propose that it began much more recently, in fact, on the day of Pentecost. So even though some suggest it's much further back, I think that there's strong biblical evidence that dispensationalists use to demonstrate that the church began on the day of Pentecost. This view is based upon five passages of Scripture. The first is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, which reads, Jesus declared, I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Just a simple rendering there shows you that that's a future event. It hasn't happened yet. Not I built my church, not I'm building my church, but I will build my church. So in Matthew chapter 16, 18, at least at that time in Caesarea Philippi, the church is yet future. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul identifies the manner in which the church is being built. At the time he writes this, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in baptizing believers into one body of Christ. At the moment of salvation, at the moment of faith or regeneration, the Holy Spirit places us into union with Christ. That's called the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit. So this second point of validation shows us that the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit places us into the body of Christ. The third point of validation comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. This identifies the body of Christ as the church, demonstrating that they're synonyms. In other words, we could say that the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit formed the body of Christ, but we haven't established that the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit formed the church. Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23 demonstrates just that fact. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus stated, You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This indicates that the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, placing believers into union with Christ, at least as of Acts chapter 1, verse 5, hadn't happened yet. But it was anticipated to be happening imminently or very shortly. The context in Acts chapters 1 through 3 clarifies the event itself and indicates that it began at Pentecost with the descent of the Holy Spirit, specifically Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So we see that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, the church is yet future. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, the baptism of the Holy Spirit forms the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, we see that the body of Christ equals the church. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit forms the church. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, it gives us a clue as to when does this baptism of the Holy Spirit take place. It's going to take place very soon after Jesus speaks the words of Acts chapter 1, verse 5. And we know from a later reckoning in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happened on the day of Pentecost. 
Now, just to be safe, most theologians add a fifth passage. Most dispensational theologians add a fifth passage, and that's Acts chapter 11, verse 15, which tells us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was something that happened in the past. By the time we get to Acts chapter 11, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a past tense event. So the conclusion is the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which formed the church, happened on the day of Pentecost. The church was formed on the day of Pentecost. Now you might be saying, well, duh, that's what I've heard all my life. That's not necessarily what your neighbors have heard all their lives. That's not necessarily what you're going to hear if you go to some other study fellowship or if you go to some Bible study at someone's home. And you need to be prepared when somebody says there's no difference between Israel and the church. You need to be prepared with answers like this to demonstrate, not to win an argument, but so that you can validate what your view is. And your view cannot be validated by, well, that's what Bruce taught us. You need to be able to go to the Scriptures yourself and work through these things. And I know many of us have been in the Word of God for so long. For so long, it almost becomes something that is so routine that we let these things go in one ear and out the other. But these are important things. I would write them down if I were you. And then commit them to memory. It's not that hard. Matthew 16, 18, the church is yet future. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, the baptism of the Holy Spirit forms the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, the body of Christ equals the church. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is future, but soon. In Acts chapter 11, verse 15, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a past tense event. Those are some generalities that I want us to know before we get into some more specifics about the church universal. Now, a couple of things about the local church. The local church is where this word ecclesia is used most often in the New Testament. The local church is, by definition, a group of believers that is identified as a local assembly or congregation. Again, it's used to designate a group of believers that's identified as a local assembly or a congregation. Pine Valley is a local church. So we would say Pine Valley is a church, little c, church, as is First Baptist or Grace Presbyterian. Or what the size of the church, there's still church, little c, meaning we're a local church. In theory, a local church should be composed of all believers. In practice, it's often not that way. In reality, not everyone in a local church is a believer. We try. That's the first question I ask when someone applies for membership in Pine Valley. Are you believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? If there's a shaky, if there's, well, I think so, then it's a good opportunity to sit down and give someone the gospel and make sure that they are before we accept them into membership. Because you don't want people becoming a member of a church thinking that that somehow is going to get them closer to heaven. Because as I told you before, I have a friend that went to Dallas Seminary with me for a while and then graduated from Criswell Seminary. As a musician, wrote a song that was entitled, You Can Sit in the Driveway All Day Long and Not Turn Into a Car. You can attend a church all your life and not be a believer. And I know there are people in this room that can amen that, that attended church as young people or maybe even as young adults. They were not believers in the Lord Jesus. There was a church in Jerusalem in terms of the New Testament. There was a church in Jerusalem. That's Acts chapter 8. In Asia Minor, there were several churches. In Rome, Rome, Romans chapter 16. In Corinth, one we're studying on Sunday morning. In Galatia, in Thessalonica, there was a church in the home of Philemon. The New Testament talks about many of these local churches, these smaller units. 
it's quite possible, if not probable, that the larger cities on this list, like Ephesus or Rome, may have had more than one local church. Especially since Rome had a population of almost, you know, five, between 500,000 and a million. It would be likely that as more Christians came to Christ in Rome, that more local churches would have developed. And it's, if you read Romans chapter 16, it's very possible that there may have been even five local churches that were represented there in Rome. Also, let's say in a place like Colossae, there may have been one local church. And how big would that local church have been? The Bible doesn't tell us. But since they met in homes, not designated buildings with large rooms, the local churches probably were anywhere from maybe 15 people to 20 people or 30 people, maybe as many. Maybe as many as 50, but I'm not sure that many homes in the ancient world would have had that many rooms that could have fit 50 people for the meeting to take place. When we first started our Tuesday night Bible study over at our home about four or five years into Pine Valley, actually it was called Bay Area Bible Church at the time, there were about 16 people that attended. And I saw a picture of that recently of the people that were there. And the place was packed, even though it was only 16 people. We couldn't have fit 30 people in our gym, that living room area. Couldn't have done it. And I'm, su- I'm assuming that most of the local churches in the ancient world were relatively small. Now, in, in terms of the local churches in our country today, they're not as big as what you might think because the mega churches get all the publicity. So you might think it's, if you're not a church of 25,000 people, you must be a pretty small church. But not in reality. In reality, according to the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, 59% of all churches in the United States have memberships of under 100. The National Congregational Study that was done in June of 2009 indicated that the median size of churches in the United States is 75, meaning that approximately half the congregations in the United States have membership of over 75, half have memberships of under 75. How big was the church in ancient times compared to the church now? Well, it was smaller in terms of local churches. The first church buildings don't appear until the 3rd century. We showed some photographs of those last time. But one of the things I want to talk about today, and the primary thing to, to finish up here with, is the idea of what's the purpose of believers gathering together? Is it to entertain ourselves? Or is it something deeper than that? In a word, we gather together to worship. Some people would kind of have the idea today that when we gather together for worship, that must mean we gather together to sing praises to God. Either to sing ourselves or to listen to other people sing. And that's certainly an aspect of worship. No question, it's an aspect of worship. But it's not the only aspect of worship. The Bible tells us that fellowship is an aspect of worship. There's many churches in the United States that are called fellowship churches. One of the largest churches up in Dallas, between Dallas and Fort Worth, is a fellowship church. And this is legitimate. We don't want to expel fellowship from our worship. It's a legitimate aspect of worship. In fact, churches that don't fellowship, where there is no fellowship, where you just come and go and you don't even know the people that are sitting next to you or in front of you or back of you, that's not a healthy church. Now, if that's all you do is fellowship, that's not a healthy church either. But we don't want to expel any of these things. Since the time of the Reformation, the centerpiece of worship in Protestant churches 
has been the instruction of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. But surely, singing is an aspect of worship. It's not synonymous with worship, but it's an aspect of worship. And in Ephesians 5, it tells us that we don't just sing and lift our voices to God for the sole purpose of expressing our love for Him just strictly between He and I. But when we sing, when we're filled up by means of the Holy Spirit and we sing these spiritual hymns and songs, we're actually singing to one another as well. I was thinking about that this morning as we were doing our singing with the guys on the front row there. And I was noticing that the, the more we sang, the more people that sang together, the more we all seemed to kind of get on key. The more we, we all seem to sing a little better, the more the more people that were singing with us. Because this person helped me, I helped that person. We all sounded better together than we did individually. Now, I know there's a few people in here that would probably say, better if the rest of you were quiet, I could just sing by myself because you have such a beautiful voice. But for most of us, it helps us to sing together. But it's also an encouragement that when, when we sing together, and we're singing words like immortal, invisible, God only wise. And when we sing the lyrics to a hymn like that, other people are hearing it and they're being ministered to by that. So there's singing is certainly an aspect of Christian worship. Giving is an aspect of Christian worship. It's an aspect that is grossly abused in many churches. There are pastors that are, and boards that are twisting arms like crazy to have people give money when it shouldn't be done that way. Free will giving is not under compulsion. It comes from a joyful heart that loves the Lord and recognizes that everything in my pocket belongs to God. Here it is. This is yours. When we give, all we're doing is we're, we're keeping back some of what belongs to God. That's what giving is, and it's an aspect of worship. And then certainly the Lord's celebration, the Lord's table on a regular basis, and water baptism on a, on a singular basis, when that comes up, those are aspects of worship. And also, it could be considered an aspect of worship to send out missionaries. Acts chapter 13, verse 2, and Acts chapter 15, verse 3, indicate that that is an aspect of worship. It's a responsibility of the local church. So when we gather together to worship, it shouldn't be like the conversation I had with a friend of mine a number of years ago. She attends a church that's south here, although I won't get any more specific than that. But I asked her one day how, how the church service went. How was the worship? And she said it was absolutely phenomenal, just phenomenal. And then she proceeded to tell me about the songs that they sang, what the choir did, some special music that they had. And in her mind, when I said, how was your worship, she meant, how was our singing? In fact, some, some churches play into this by labeling the music leader as the worship leader. So we dig our own grave in that respect. We fool ourselves that way. Actually, the worship leader is probably the pastor. That's the person that's, that's overseeing the whole operation. But if there was such a thing as a worship leader that wasn't the pastor, he wouldn't just be taking care of the music. He would be organizing and making sure the pastor was what the pastor's message was. He would make sure the giving was being taken care of and making sure missionaries were sent out. It, maybe a board can occupy that position, but music leader is not necessarily the worship leader. It's a little bit of a misnomer. Music leader leads that aspect of worship concerning the lifting our voices and singing praises to God. I asked that same friend of mine, well, what was, what was the sermon about? 
And she's taught for a bit, and she's a dear, sweet lady. I mean, really dear lady, but she's taught for a bit. It's like, I don't know. Did he preach today? I can't remember. At the time, I wasn't a pastor. I didn't totally understand that, but I do now. <laughs> so I won't pass a card around and ask you what I preached about this morning. I, my, my self-esteem won't take that, I don't think. But the point is that worship is more than just music. But you know what? Worship is more than just instruction. Because while some people think that music, that music is the only aspect of worship they're interested in, other people think that instruction is the only thing I'm interested in. And it's all of these things, if we're going to do this as unto the Lord. Ideally, a local church will be made up of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who love the Lord, who want to express that love through gathering together and responding to the previous revelation we had with adoring the Lord with our voices, with our intellects, with our pocketbooks, with every ounce of